Well, let's begin with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this season that we've been able to celebrate the birth of your son and how he came to save us from sin, death, and hell. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into his suffering on the cross and what that means for us and how you break the power of sin in our lives through the cross, that you would uh, minister to our hearts and allow us to grow in our joy and gratitude for what you've done for us. In your son's name we ask. Amen. So, we already discussed in the last quarter something of what uh, Christ's work for us does in terms of getting rid of the guilt of our sin. And we discussed important terms like propitiation, expiation, atonement, and justification. Um, But this week I wanted to focus on how specifically the power of sin is broken in the cross. Um, Next week we'll look more at the the resurrection and maybe some of the historical and different arguments and proofs for the resurrection, more the historical arguments for those things and how the ascension is so essential for our salvation. But this week I want to look at how, really how important the cross is in breaking the power and the spell of sin in our lives in a very real and tangible way. And to begin, I wanted to read a couple passages to kind of like frame our con- the context of what, of how specifically Paul looked at the cross and the power of sin in our lives. But first in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6, he says in following, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though although it is not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And then in, over in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sin, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Um, So the three of the things I want to talk about today are specifically... Let me get tangled. what it means that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, dead, and buried, and how he descended into hell. And the three things that kind of come out of that, just like looking at the context of the cross, is specifically how the cross was a spectacle, uh, and then how that spectacle of the cross breaks the power of sin, and then what it really means that Jesus descended into hell. So first, the, the spectacle of the cross um, in the ancient world, spectacles were very common public events where the people who were in power and the masses would often go to places like a coliseum or they would see crucifixions where they would, in some sense, sub- subjugate those who were lesser than themselves. And these spectacles were these elaborate orchestrated events 
that showed the world who was in control and why. Um, Rome was the king of these kinds of events from the violent gladiators to the use of crucifixions like the cross. Rome and her faithful people, her church, quote-unquote, would go to these events where they displayed their power and how they desired their empire to be eternal and to be able to fulfill all of our human desires and aspirations. And those events would, in some sense, solidify those things. And anyone who got in the way of this empire or the masses or this pursuit of freedom would themselves be subjected to these kind of spectacles, being placed in the Colosseum as objects of amusement and entertainment. Um, So these shows, these massive spectacles were these events that had a massive amount of of spending spent on them. And they had these massive shows that played a very significant role in Rome, in its politics, and uh, how, how many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? I'm sure you've seen that. While it's not entirely accurate, it does a good job showing how the emperor himself was tied up in these games, tied up in, in how he tried to appease the masses and, and, the, and the senators and all these people would battle back and forth through these events for the control of the empire. And they would show who was in the in-group and who was in the out-group through these things. It was kind of like their virtue signaling. Hashtag love is love. You know, hashtag whatever it is, social justice warrior kind of thing. Um, they would see who is the supporter of what they considered freedom and liberty and what was and what was not the good life that gave everyone in their society meaning and purpose. So these spectacles included public executions that would marginalize victims and display them as like abominations in society. And it reinforced the crowd's understanding of superiority um, and they would funnel all their hatred of certain people into these events. And they were, these, the, the mechanism by which the empire assimilated people and subject, subjugated different nations that they would conquer through these things. And it was very important how the Roman emperors and governors and people like Pontius Pilate or Caesar would establish their authority um, and this is really important for understanding what the cross actually meant in the first century. The Roman emperors would pay all this amount of money and go into massive amounts of debt for these feasts so that the crowds would flock to their spectacles and they would draw all these different classes together and through it they would unite their people in a common goal and vision of life through these feasts that dis- depicted all their desires and the glory and immortality of Rome through the violence that was going on in these things. So this violent show of power was very much behind the death of Christ on the cross. That his, his humiliation was a death of a spectacle of humiliation and what we talk about in terms of objectification. Um, it was simultaneously an electric chair and a circus. 
of entertainment for the Romans and the Jews who watched. The Romans showed their control that Caesar was Lord by doing this. And it all, but for the Jews, it showed that they were in control of the path to God and that Jesus was condemned as cursed by God and men. It was a spectacle that was a gratifying entertainment to them. And they mocked and ridiculed him, if you remember reading in the Gospel passages. Um, there was one early church writer, Augustine, who talked about the spectacles of his own 4th, uh, 5th century Rome. And he readily shows us like how Jesus is providing a huge contrast with the world of blood, blood-soaked desire and consumption and power that was often displayed all around him. All these things that were our human attempts at controlling our destiny and our vision of the good life, Augustine saw a connection between those things and these spectacles and what he would say are the demonic and how specifically Satan controls us as the prince of power of the air through our desires. Um, and hopefully this will become more readily apparent like how, how important this is for us today in a, in a minute. Um, but when people think of demons, what do we often think of today? Uh, we probably think of like people in the news with like their heads spinning and exorcisms and like all these crazy superhuman things with the extraordinary. Um, but oftentimes they operate in very ordinary ways that kind of go under the radar. Um, demons were linked with the passions of the soul as these immortal beings ruled by their desires. And Augustine, I think he was really helpful in understanding how these things operated when he said that the spectacle goers, these people who would go to these things, were indulging, were, were partaking in these demons of desire in the amphitheater when they saw all the beauty of their empire and the promise of glory, the promise of immortality and complete satisfaction, um, that their desires would be inflamed through these things and they would just lose control in this kind of ecstasy. And so they were able to do all these awful things to people because they were being controlled by their passions and desires. And they would do these things because this would be how they would tangibly try to keep their way of life from falling apart. Does that make sense? Like they would do these things to try to make their vision of what the good life was stay together and hold together. And so they would lose themselves in these things, in these Colosseum and these crucifixions, and they would do unspeakable evil to people because that kind of violence was the result of their view of power and life. Um, so how does this relate to us? This is kind of like off in ancient history, kind of seems very foreign, but um, I think one of the good ways of seeing it is where is violence seen in our own time? And I think that, that we see it all around us. Um, it often seems that it's an interesting question to ask in our own time to think about how those things can be seen, these spectacles can be seen in our own day. Because I think in, in, our, in the West, we're kind of 
in a land of privilege where we're not touching those things, where we're kind of distant from that kind of violence. But I think in the, in the technological age in which we live, we are often in the West complicit in exporting war and instruments of war on a kind of a global scale. And on our screens and computer tablets and iPhones and the cinema, we see these virtual simulations of violence that even though they don't touch us in our our actual flesh like it did in the Colosseum or in the crucifixions, um, we are seeing virtual images of people being hacked and burst apart and exploded in tiny pieces. And we have even like high-precision instruments of death that just like are reigning above us that we don't even, we're not even aware of. And showering death on, on so many people around the world, who are many of whom are innocent. And we inflict death as a culture from a distance. And we're just kind of unaware of it because we live in such a land of privilege. And that was very much, very similar to these Colosseums, very similar to these crucifixions where these people would just stand from afar and watch these evil things happening. And I think in our day, we're kind of cocooned and kind of separated from that by the consumer kind of capitalism of our day where we are distracting ourselves from the reality of what's going on um, by a religion of shopping, by a religion of shopping whose business is manufacturing endless desire where all we do is consume more than Rome ever could do in those Colosseums or that the crucifixions. Um, there was one author, Guy Debord, who talked about in the 1960s saying that he described our society as a society of the spectacle where the West is just constantly overcome and gratified by all these bombardment of images where we're kind of pseudo-entertained by all these images that make us want to buy things. And they also, also make us want to be entertained more and more by things, which would make us want to buy more things, until our, our, our very identity is just kind of like, and our meaning and our purpose is wrapped up in by what we buy and what we consume and what we use, and then we throw away, and then we buy some more. And, 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 it's, and it actually takes on a very religious, spiritual meaning and purpose in our society. I think there was this one interesting documentary on PBS that a guy named Douglas Rushkoff had where he, do- he documents how marketers and influential brand managers have learned to build their brands like Apple and Starbucks and Nike uh, by studying religious groups and cults. And one of the influential brand managers he interviewed observes that people, whether they're joining a cult or a brand are doing it exactly for the same reasons. They need to belong and they want meaning. Uh, they need to know what the world is all about. This, this brand manager uh, led in this new understanding of his job and he sees himself as a kind of pastor or priest where he says now a brand manager has an entirely different kind of responsibility In fact, they have more responsibility that their job is to create and maintain a whole system of meaning for people through which they are given an identity 
and an, under- and an understanding of the whole world. So after speaking with these managers, uh, Douglas Rushkoff realized that today advertisers are filling the empty spaces where churches once did the job. And I think that's interesting because our country, it just kind of shows that there's a religious thing that's going on and that we're just as spiritual and religious as ancient Rome, seeking after meaning and glory in these different spectacles. They may not be like Colosseums or the Crosset, but they're very, very tangible. And I think like that is a very helpful way of then understanding how the cross has meaning and purpose in our own lives. Um, I think another good example is like how there's this huge explosion of superhero narratives in all the movies in recent years and magazines and everything. Um, but the Romans also had this affinity, they had this love for superhero demigods who uh, Augustine talked about, he said that they understood the appeal of such beings where their superhuman bodies are eternal. They're impervious to illness or decay. And they're like beautiful and impossibly strong. Um, and yet, like us, they're corrupted by their passions and their desires. That their avarice and their lust and their violence and so forth is on display. And this is actually what the early church would call demons. That... And I think that if Augustine were here today, he might be saying the same kind of things, that they are so powerful in our day because they're specifically doing what um, these, these events, like the spectacles, were doing in his day, that they are all tapping into our, our infinite desires. They're all tapping into our longing for God and for something spiritual. That they're all tapping into this vision of meaning and purpose and they're taking advantage of those things and inflaming our passions and desires and controlling us through that. And I think that those things are, are er- everywhere in our, consu- in, our, in our consumer culture, whether it's advertising or music or vampire stories or video games, virtual reality... Why does this matter? Why, why do I bring up all these different things um, in relationship to the cross? Well, I think that we've become, we've really become these just consumers of spectacles um, seeking after our own day's demonic desires. Uh, like I said, that demons, we often think of like the head spinning and exorcism and all these like superhuman things like that television kind of shows it to be, but there are real spiritual battles going on, as, as we read in the passage in Ephesians, that Satan is really controlling people through their passions and desires and blinding them and blinded us in our past. And these desires are being taken advantage of by marketing and media to cultivate those things in us. And these kind of experiences are taking advantage of our, our longing for goodness. They're taking advantage of our longing for God, but ultimately, they're just stirring up our disordered passions and desires. And, and I think that's part of the spell, the idolatrous spell of these spectacles that we are incorporated in and the ancient world had because they mimic 
worship. They mimic church. They mimic our liturgy, as the brand advertiser said, and how we communicate with God. Um, but it's like it, 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 I, people, young people these today are just kind of flitting back and forth like their storms and their soul is, is just going from one song to next song and, and their emotions are going up and down and they're just being controlled by every flitting new relationship or every new movie and they're just, they're just constantly a, a torrent in their soul, like a storm and a storm of emotions. And I think that this is exactly what Paul is talking about, about being controlled by our passions and our desires for instant gratification. And, and of course, I think the, the most sinister thing is that we do not know, or rather we don't want to know that we're possessed, that we're under the spell of these, the demonic, that these spectacles are alive and well with us today as they were in Christ's day. And we even talk today of people becoming objectified and how evil that is. But in many ways, this is, this is like, just as in the ancient world in Rome, this is how people maintained their power over others and abused and subjected all, to them to all kinds of mental and physical abuse. Um, and we see that today in advertising and abortion and pornography and a whole host of things that seems like freedom to, to pursue absolute pleasure. It seems like this is what we really want, but they're really just ways that we're actually being controlled. And that's exactly what an idol is. You know, they're just, idols are, yeah, they're human artifacts. They're anything that we start giving more power and control to than we should. And... These, these things, these idols, even in our day, are, are really opening us up to all kinds of real activity where we are promised true fulfillment and aroused by our most compulsive, insatiable, self-serving desires. And I think that's, what, where, that's where the power and the appeal lies. And that's where our infinite longings and desires are just being funneled to consuming, to becoming consumers. Because we really think that we can, by doing those things, control life and control our vision of happiness. And we have a vice grip on those things. Um, and if we lose them, we go crazy. Working at Starbucks for four year, three years, you see, like I saw that, people who did not have their Starbucks would just go insane if we messed up their order. If they didn't have their caffeine... It was like the world was ending and they're like, what are we going to do? My, my day is starting off bad and we're like, whoa. <laughs> um, and I understand having a bad day, but, but that's exactly what, what is happening, this endless desire, desire without end. But we're, we're just wanting nothing more than controlling our, our, our universe and having power. And then when things don't go, bad, don't, don't go as well as planned, we that's when we act violently and respond, just like they did in these spectacles of the Colosseum. And the scary thing is, like the hard thing is, is that this is kind of like the uphill battle that we all face, each one of us, 
where when those things that are finite, those human things, those finite things, don't fulfill our infinite desires, that useless kind of passion leads to despair. And that useless passion leads to even worse things. And that struggle for so many people, like you just, you can see it in people's eyes when you walk by them, that it's only going to end in death. And, 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 I, and I think that's just like, that is the tragedy, is that we don't really see the spiritual thing that's going on around us, the, the real warfare. Um, that when those things, those infinite desires do not find their home in God, we just wander around in a desert of distraction. And I think that's a great way of thinking of like, like how many times you just like get up and like life feels like a desert and God has left you out there to die. And, but sadly, this, this, this desert of distraction is now we're a place where we can just have this, all our desires being gorged in this endless array of finite satisfactions and pleasures of our day. And this is a real counterfeiting that's going on where these things are glittering and shiny, but they're really poison for our souls. Um, and the reason why they're so toxic is because they do provide us some kind of ecstasy, don't they? Like they really, like not ecstasy like the drug, but there is some kind of ecstasy that's happening in music concerts and in festivals in drugs and alcohol, the Colosseum, the crucifixion, where endless pleasure, these things seem to control us and have a powerful ecstasy that they give us. And, you know, these, these, these ecstasies, whether they're counterfeits, whether it's chemically induced ones or socially produced ones, where crowds lose themselves in dancing and they, we lose ourselves and we're just happy to lose ourselves in these things. But these things just end with nothing to answer those infinite, restless desires. Our souls are just being tossed to and fro with every new thing that comes our way. But these things are just masquerading. They're counterfeits. Offering false meaning and purpose and completion. Because we inevitably wake up with that hangover the next day. And if we're wise, you know, we really see the poverty of that kind of fulfillment. Um, the poison of the party turns our souls to ash, and we just and we can even feel it in our bodies the next morning. Um, this ecstasy ends up leaving us with nothing but emptiness in the morning, and this really what is a gnawing hell of despair, and and really that 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 life of wanting everything now ultimately leads to a life that's not worth living or worth anything. And that's this like that's the that's the when 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 in a world where you know sex is easy and love is hard, where everything is now and we just have control over all these things, we're we're left without love. And that's like the saddest thing. Because we're just left with ourselves at the end of the day. And I think that C.S. Lewis had a great way of actually even kind of getting ahead of ourselves, describing what hell actually is. Where he said that the characteristic of lost souls 
is the rejection of everything that's simply not themselves. That our imaginary self, our ego, has tried in life to turn everything it meets into like an appendage to itself or a supporting actor to my life story. And eventually the taste for others, that is the very capacity for enjoying good, is quenched in them. Except insofar as that you you know you, you end up with your body still kind of running into people and but everything is bah humbug you know like and then only at, at the last moment death removes that last contact with others and the lost soul has his wish to lie wholly in his self and to make the best of what he finds there and what he finds there is hell. Um. All that are in hell, as Lewis says, choose it. Because without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires true joy will ever miss it. Those who seek it will find it. To those who knock it is opened. And as I said before, I think that's kind of what's so sinister about our secular age is that it's masking all these problems as if they aren't, aren't demonic, as if they aren't spiritual warfare that Paul is talking about when they really are, that the freedom that we think we're all choosing is empty and it leads to the hell of self. Um, That all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But that's, that's exactly where the cross hits us and meets us because that is where the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so that's kind of like that's exactly where the power of sin is broken in the cross, because it meets us in that very world that we're talking about, the context of Christ's death as a spectacle of humiliation, where he was absolutely objectified. And what is remarkable is that the that Jesus Christ overcome, overcame Rome's spectacle by accepting it and by entering into it. And he was public, where he was publicly mocked and executed and marginalized. And he became the supreme spectacle, giving his very life for us while he was suffering under Pontius Pilate. And that's how he exactly he destroys the power of evil and violence and sin by entering into death's game. God's response to our violence is found in the specific, in the, this humiliation and who's and the Savior whose blood was poured out on this Roman torture device um, where the truly innocent, the truly innocent for the first time, suffers for the guilty. And I think that that is like that above all else is like the Christian claim that the creed is bringing out. That this suffering, humiliated Jew from the first century is where we see God. And... But how can, how, can a, how can we make sense of this even today? I think I was, I'm trying to show how the spectacle and all these things are so important concepts, but how can a suffering, humiliated Jew really offer any hope to sinners? How can he offer any salvation to us? Because I, by all appearances, Jesus seems like he's cursed. Like he seems like he's on the outs with the world. He was born in this food receptacle to migrant parents who are blue-collar workers, and he seems on this road of abject poverty and ordinariness. 
Jesus seems to be rejected by God and men on this cross. But this, is, this rejection is really the key to our hope that he was willing to suffer for something he didn't commit is what actually opens the door of peace to our hearts for the first time and with God, more importantly. So Christ went to this cross, this place of suffering and humiliation, and where no one could look upon him. No one could bear to watch the kind of suffering that he went through. And it seemed like his humanity to be stripped away from him. And no one would stand with him. No one would speak up for him, defend him. Everyone fled from him and the disgrace of God and man was laid on him. Shame was like thick like a cloud and it covered the earth and covered the face of the sky and darkness was there and the ground trembled. Um, To the ancient world, it appeared that he was really damned by God. Well, in descending to this very point, as we're saying, to the depths of our hell, Christ overcame all the evil that the world could muster. The perfect Lamb of God was suffering for the guilty. In this way, Jesus didn't return evil for evil. Jesus returned good for evil. And by doing that, the game of vengeance, the game of the spectacle was actually broken. By Jesus not returning that evil that was done to him and he was just willingly suffered it, the spectacle and that evil that we try to muster by controlling our own universe and our world, he breaks its power because he's not doing tit for tat. He's not responding in vengeance, but he just continues to lay down his life in love. By allowing himself to really fall under that sort of judgment, Jesus breaks the power of evil and death through humility. He's acting in love for the very first time in the history of the world perfectly for the first time in history. He doesn't allow himself to be caught in the game of vengeance. And so doing that, he opens the door to peace for the first time by going to the cross for us. And this is how we see like how he breaks specifically the power of sin in our own lives. That forgiveness and love start shutting down all the reasons our heart have to doubt God. That our God has forgiven us and we have nothing to fear. Um, Our Savior willingly submits Himself to crimes that He didn't commit and He releases us from what we deserve. The violence that is so much filling our hearts and filling the, the ancient world and all the desires that are just being inflamed by these spectacles, He's taking it away from them by laying his life down. He doesn't respond in power. He responds by coming underneath that. And people start, you can start seeing how the Roman centurion says, this man must have been the son of God because he doesn't respond like the world does. He ends that game of violence for the first time. And we start becoming freed from that game of shame and guilt and fear. So when, when Pontius Pilate, this violent 
Lord of men. He spoke. Jesus said nothing to defend himself. He just silently went to his unjust death. And I think that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 2 really gets at this, that in his pride, Satan tries to lay this trap to catch God himself in the cycle of vengeance and this spectacle. You know, God, who's supreme in his power and authority, surely he will use his power to vindicate himself and just crush all his enemies instantly. Um, But as Paul says, if the rulers of this age had understood what God had decreed, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because instead of acting out in that kind of vengeance, um, Jesus silently goes to this unjust death where we can actually start being forgiven of our own violence and our own attempts at these power plays to subject others God destroys that. He uses his power to give himself away. Um, and I think we, as Americans, we often, we often forget that there are... We hear those things and it sounds really good and we, and we forget that there are alternative stories to our vision of the good life an alternative story for our desires. Um, But in Jesus Christ, just as much as he did in ancient Rome, he's offering a way out of our own modern spectacles in our counterfeit stories and desires and ecstasies that we talked about. We can renounce those demons of desire that form and shape our world by putting on Christ instead. And I think we see that very tangibly every week when we hear the preaching of God's Word and even in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, where Christ is offering Himself again and again and again as this consumable object. Um, but that's, I think that, that is like where the beauty of it starts coming home for us in this twist that, that this crucified and risen Christ is the true recipient of all our desires that all those things are battling for. Um, Christ's presence in the Eucharist can at least start ending that insatiable desire that this world is constantly trying to exploit. In contrast to like these feasts where in the ancient world where people are just gorging themselves and watching the gladiators kill them, kill themselves and each other. Jesus is giving us this simple meal, and he's drawing all people together to himself from every nation and class and tribe. And he turns that violent spectacle on its head. The crucifixion becomes the cross becomes a, a symbol of life. And he creates even today in a real tangible way, a decisive turn against the politics and the economics of our own day, showing us, in fact, that what we truly are desiring is God himself. And that's what he gives to us. To the consumers like us, we, Jesus is offering himself for consumption. Not only to our eyes, but also to our hands and to our mouth. And he's in the place of these unsatisfying consumptions of our day, 
that leave us so hollow. The cross is this thing that represents to us Jesus offering Himself as the bread of God that can satisfy us eternally. To the false ecstasy of the rock concert of the football game, the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper and worship that we go through each week is really offering us a true ecstasy for our souls where we're actually being melted away and become part of God, God's own Son. At this, at the, in, this, in this true worship service, we're actually being translated into what we're eating. We're actually becoming eternally united to the Son of God. As Paul says, translated from the kingdom of darkness, that kingdom that he was, Paul was talking about of Satan, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And I think that's, that's really such an amazing thing that Jesus in the crucifixion, he's overcoming the spectacle that was forced on him. And he becomes the object of our consuming gaze. But he does what everyone else only falsely promises. He really satisfies our desires. He's not an idol. He's not this distracting demon. But he's really God in flesh. The whole creed is leading up to this very thing. That this, this cross is opening up genuine meaning and transcendence with, and, and the way to God the Father. You know, God is himself placing himself into our very hands. And it seems like weakness. It seems like foolishness and folly that God would do this. But as Paul says, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. That the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And that's what, so that no one can boast before him. Jesus was nailed on the cross and in his death, this kind of violence and this kind of power play that we see in his day and in our day has an answer. Um, his weakness, the weakness of God, broke the very gates of hell and the power of sin and death. And I think that's why it's so cool when the angels first declare Jesus' birth that they say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Because Jesus is coming and his death on this cross is the first time that we can actually have peace for our souls. So it's not, so it's no longer the storm of uncontrollable passion because heaven has actually now been given to our hearts. And just kind of wrapping up quickly, the, the amazing thing is that Jesus, the cross means that Jesus actually lets us use him. I know that kind of sounds kind of weird, but he lets us objectify him and torture him by our sinful, disordered passions. He lets himself be put on display in that utter shame that we so much fear. And our hearts, in our hearts, put him there. And yet he knows that we're acting out of fear, out of the desire to control things. And in some sense, he lets us go all the way to our heart's desires, which leads to his death. Um, and that is really the depth of his love. That is the depth of the hu- his humiliation that he willingly went to for you and me. He lets us grab hold of him in the worship service, in the supper even when we have all these mixed motives, 
even when we're full of sin and disordered passions still, He lets us use Him. But in doing that, without retaliating, without just like coming in glory right now with all His angels and just destroying His enemies, by just acting in humility and love, He actually destroys the power that we so desperately try to cling to as our way of freedom because He's unconditionally loving us in that sacrifice regardless of where we are in our hearts. That ultimately He's showing us how powerless we are in our sin and our brokenness by giving Himself away again and again and again. He sets us free for the first time by His love, by what appears to be weakness. And and I think that's, that is really the remarkable thing is like the cross not only deals with the guilt of our sin, but He starts slowly breaking its power in our lives. He slowly just continually does that as we hear the preaching of the cross, as we hear that over and over again, as we continually take the Lord's Supper, that our hearts are slowly being melted away by His love. Um, and Jesus is opening up this door to true freedom to true love and that our desires are being fulfilled again and again in Him. The true pleasure and fulfillment that we were made for, the cross is now the thing that opens that door. So this is how, you know, really Christ not only deals the guilt of our sin, but its power in our lives. And really, in some sense, what it means for Him to, to descend into hell. It, it wasn't, to the specific place of hell that he went to, but he went all the way to where our sin led on the cross, what hell was. And he let himself enter into that as a spectacle on the cross for our death. Um, So hell in this creed is really not so much as a place, but so much as him going to where our sinful actions lead us to. And yet he redeems us through it so that we can enter into heaven's glory. That he passes through hell, through our hell, to bring us to heaven. And I just love how Lewis talks about it. That He says, like, to enter heaven is to become more human than you ever succeeded in being on earth. To enter hell is to be banished from humanity. And this is what Jesus experienced so that we don't have to. That the result of everything that hell is is a penalty for rejecting God and others with anything that isn't our ego on the throne is exactly what Jesus enters into to break its power. Um, and this is, this, is, this is why we go through the creed to learn specifically how to again and again start falling into God's love. And that that love that He has for us is just awaiting the true and lasting pleasure, being truly human. Um, what seems like awful self-denial right now is only for a moment. Those things are actually preparing us for a, a greater pleasure and a greater glory that awaits us. That His gift on, the, on this humiliation, this sacrifice on the cross is freeing us from trying to create and maintain our own identity by controlling everything and everyone in our lives. That His life moves us from this economy of consumption and 
false desires centered on the self now to this economy of gift um, where we're freed from holding on to things with this death grip, with this vice grip, so that we can actually have open hands like Christ did on the cross of gratitude to God, receiving and giving to others. Um, Hopefully we'll get into that more in the discipleship aspect of the course. But we're freed for the first time to use the good things that God gave us, using the, the, the gifts that he gives us rightly because Jesus himself was given to us as a gift. So hopefully going through this under, these things, understanding what this spectacle was, helps us to start seeing how the power of sin is broken in our lives by Christ descending into our hell and redeeming us through that. Um, I know that was probably that was a lot, and that was probably pretty dark at moments, but hopefully it was worth it. Any thoughts or comments, questions, ideas? Covered a lot of ground. Had a few laughs. <laughs> Well, let's uh, end with a word of prayer then. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word and what you are constantly revealing to us, the height and depth and love that you have for us and what breadth it has that we can constantly go to it and find new things, riches old and new, and, and constantly be renewed by that truth and the power of your cross that we hear, hear preached to us and that we hear and then we begin to see and taste and see that you are good in the supper each week. We thank you for that privilege and that you are constantly translating us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts that gratitude that allows us to no longer be controlled by our passions and our desires, but truly find them fulfilled in you and your Son. Uh, and it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.